ladies and gentlemen, it's the B&B Show on the Kilt and the Cloth, where the theologian and the philosopher discuss the world. You're welcome. Well, here we are, ladies and gentlemen. It's Joshua Bell from the Kilt and the Cloth, and we are joined by my co-host, Mr. Dr. Kevin Bond. Say hi, Kevin. Hi, world! <laughs> it's good to have you. We've decided that after our last podcast that we are going to do in a five-part series. That's the number after four and the number before six. Just wanted you guys to know that. I, I do know some math. Uh, while we're at it, we're going to do a, a five-part series. Today's episode is going to be called, Who Are We and Why Are We Doing This? Or, in some ways, what are what is philosophy and what is theology and how are they similar and unique? A lot of people asked us after we did our first podcast. So, uh, Josh, Kevin, we want to know more about why philosophy and theology are so closely related. So let's just kind of start off the conversation and talk about the origins of philosophy. In your world, who started it? So in the Western tradition, which I studied, so we're going to be discounting a whole wealth of knowledge from other cultures and stuff, but narrowly focused on the Western world, typically we look back at what we call the pre-Socratics, so about 500, 600 B.C., and they're called the pre-Socratics because they either literally lived before Socrates or they were contemporary with him and influenced him uh, and developed ideas before his stuff really took off. So, because we have some people that really have no idea what we mean by pre-Socratic, you're talking about Socrates the philosopher, yes, right? Yes, So, in Western uh, philosophy, we usually think uh, the three greats would be Socrates, his student Plato, and Plato's student Aristotle. Uh, but before they became big, they're drawing on ideas from the pre-Socratics. And their names are, we, we they're just really weird and hard to say. They are. Like, like the two that I was thinking of today uh, would be Thales um, of Miletus. I think that's where he's from. Mm-hmm. Um, and Xenophanine. So Thales is the easy one. The, the X one, I'm not too sure how to pronounce that. Uh, so Thales, he's the guy that Aristotle identified as the very first philosopher. He was one of the seven great sages of antiquity. Um, what he focused on is what we call natural philosophy, or trying to understand nature. Uh, they were very concerned with practical concerns, like measuring the earth, developing agriculture, figuring out ship navigation, looking up at the stars, trying to figure out astronomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, just really questioning uh, what is the reality of the na- natural world that we live in. Uh, Xenophanine, uh, on the other hand, uh, he's who we consider the first critical theologian in Western philosophy. And so, uh, naturally, he's worried about religious issues. So, identifying what different people believe, what kind of different religious practices are available at the time, uh, matters of right or wrong, virtue, vice, good and evil, mm-hmm. questions like that. And what makes them, so philosophers, is we typically say philosophy, it's the search for truth, or it's the love of wisdom and trying to figure out the truth and, and wisdom. <laughs> what kind of sets these people apart 
um, to, to make them what we call the first philosophers. So for Thales, what he does is he looks out into nature and he just asks what now seems like a simple question, but back then was kind of earth shattering. He's like, you know, what if the natural order of things is actually a natural order? Like we don't have capricious gods throwing lightning bolts down to punish people or sending waves into the city. Um, but what if there's an actual order or pattern to the universe that we can discover? Um, and, and kind of a corollary with that, what if the gods aren't these capricious, willful superhumans that are just trying to play around? What if they might have some kind of natural process where they follow a law or rules themselves? So he asked that question, uh, and then his next big leap is to say, what if anyone can do this and figure things out? So we're not going to have knowledge being restricted to the oracles or the prophets or the priests who get divine knowledge uh, or get some kind of sudden inspiration of the truth. We're now going to look at an almost mundane process where we can train people to make careful observations about the world and use critical thinking to gain knowledge that's open for anyone who cares to engage in this process. That's kind of long-winded. Oh, I don't know if I'd call it long-winded. I mean, it's when we talk about philosophy, I mean, it, it to become this organized way of thought mm-hmm. is, is uh, in the search for truth is, is kind of a hard thing to explain <laughs> right, in like right. three words or less. Right. I mean, it's completely impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think if we were talking about the origins of theology, now, while you come from um, this philosophy background, the, theologians, on the other hand, that that's such a huge, um, I don't know, man, There's it's, it's, it's a pantheon. There's so mm-hmm. many voices mm-hmm. of theology. But see, part of the problem with it is, is we can't just narrow it down to Judeo-Christian understandings of theology and the origins of it, mm-hmm. where you've got Buddhists that have been practicing since 5000 B.C. Mm-hmm. to uh, what we would call the Hebrew culture that really, we start to really kind of claim them around 2900 B.C.E. Right. And so there's this weird, weird thing for us, because in the same way that philosophy searches for the truth, the theologian side says, well, this is our truth mm-hmm. and you're more than welcome to it <laughs> right except for uh you have to do it our way right and and so i think that's why i love the similarities and the uniqueness even though theology might go back a little further i don't think that we can honestly say organized religious thought mm-hmm. um that was written down and that was continued to practice really doesn't happen until about 2500 BCE for the Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. understanding. So, but with that being said, all of Christianity, no matter what anybody wants to argue, is influenced by the pre-Socratics mm-hmm. as well as uh, Socrates, mm-hmm. Plato, and Aristotle. I mm-hmm. mean, there's just no way to avoid it. Right. So, I mean, the whole idea that of Plato's city on the hill or this utopic idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Aristotle ends up trying to change, mm-hmm. it, it all comes from the same right. origin. Right. Um, so the church itself, the institutional church, you know, again, doesn't really become the institution until mm-hmm. 312 CE. I right. mean, uh, when Constantine declares that Rome's 
major religion is Christianity. Mm-hmm. So, so I think I guess part of the thing is is if they're both searching for truth, what are some of the questions that theologians and maybe philosophers mm-hmm. might look for? Okay. So typically, in like a beginning philosophy class, we're going to say there are the three big questions: What is real? How do I know? And how should I live my life? Uh, I think that really does capture the spirit of philosophy right there, trying to break down the illusions we see around us mm-hmm. and, again, figure out what what our reality is or what someone else's reality is or what is the really real. Mm-hmm. You know? um, but then concurrent with that, you got to have some way of justifying how do we defend that this view of reality is what everyone else should partake in. You know? Right. Uh, and then to me, the interesting uh, out, uh, I'm going to say this, the interesting um, thing that comes out of these then is they influence how we're going to live our life. Mm-hmm. Because the, the way you experience reality, the way you justify your reality, is definitely going to impact how you feel you should live, live your life mm-hmm. and how you interact with other people. That's awesome. <laughs> it's funny. I, I'm saying it's awesome because... Uh, the very first thing that you learn in introduction to theology is the three questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is real? Uh, <laughs> how do you understand it? Yeah. And then really, how do you explain it to others? Right. And so I, I was, I was, I wanted to chuckle at the beginning because mm-hmm. uh, when we first took theology, um, the, our professor, um, uh, we, we have, we have one professor that's kind of a Mennonite church of the brethren, but probably grew up more Catholic mm-hmm. And then the other one was a uh, who was going to be a, a Franciscan monk, mm-hmm. um, and so they're both standing here in front of us, and they say, "Well, here's what theology isn't," and yeah. and, and you're like, "Oh, well, that's cool," uh, but it's almost identical to the mm-hmm. same definition as <laughs> philosophy. The right. only the only focus that theology might do, and again, I'm, I'm and I'm purely speaking from a Judeo Christian understanding, is mm-hmm. is that there's a, a, a created deity. Uh, it, that we may call God, uh, we may have different genderized terms for the Creator, but for us, there's this deity that creates things. Mm-hmm. And then, how do you explain that? Right. So then, the theology has to gird that; it has mm-hmm. to give it strength. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, I mean, it's 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 really fascinating that we start off with what is real, right. and then you go from there. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so what happens? in theology or philosophy when we find the answers mm-hmm. you know like uh, and so mm-hmm. like in theology there is no answer mm-hmm. like you're going to continue the, the 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 search for truth ends up becoming the the truth mm-hmm. my theology professor would say something to the effect of if you come out of this class having no ans- no questions then i have failed right you should have more questions leaving the class than you did when you started mm-hmm. Is that kind of similar or? Yes and no. Uh, we certainly have the spirit, uh, again, going back to Socrates, that yep. the wisest thing you could know is that you don't know things. Right. And that so you're constantly going to be engaged in questioning your reality and trying to find the answers to that. Um, but then there's a sense we do find answers, and I think we do this either in an academic setting or in a personal setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, in an academic setting, often when we start getting answers, we literally break off into a new department in college. 
So like when physics takes off from oh, natural weird. philosophy, you got the physics department, you got the chemistry department. I mean, we didn't have universities back then, but right, right. that's the kind of idea. Once you get answers, you break basically break out into a science branch at that point. Oh, neat. Uh, so like when I was in graduate school, they kind of let us in on like psychology was one of the most recent breaks from philosophy. Right. Uh, that if you study early philosophy of mind text, they're doing basic psychology. So if you talk about, you know, Freud and um, I can't remember any other names back then, but when they were engaged in their practice, they thought of themselves as doing a form of philosophy, not psychology. Um, oh, fascinating. Likewise, um, you know, computer science comes from a multidisciplinary uh, math, logic, critical thinking, and philosophy, neuro, modern neuroscience. So there's always kind of this interdisciplinary aspect of philosophy that when people latch on to a particular topic, it usually becomes another branch to study. Huh. So that's on the academic side. Uh, I think on the personal side, you know, as much as we talk about, I know nothing, so I need to keep finding truth, eventually you got to bite the bullet and say, I do have certain beliefs. So I think after you examine your own beliefs and the implications they have and try to tease out any contradictions in your own belief, you start developing a personal philosophy in a personal way that you are now going to see the world and interact with other people. And you still might question things. Uh, I mean, Descartes was the great guy that said, at least once in your life, you need to question everything, everything right. and build yourself up from first principles. Um, and then ever since then, philosophy has been kind of stuck on that. But he was like, oh, no, you just do it once. Right. you got to live life. You know, ultimately, you got to leave the classroom. you got to leave the experiments that you're thinking about. And you have to live a life. And right. So that's what we do with the personal philosophy. We start applying things for ourselves. Which is it's fascinating that you use Descartes. When you and I have had conversations about this before, <clears throat> I always go back to Descartes because... Mm -hmm. Descartes changes the way we think theologically, also. Yeah, because all all up until up until him, the the idea that I could be like God mm -hmm. was never a thought process. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. So when he comes up with the statement, "I think, therefore I am," mm -hmm. that makes theologians splinter. I mean, it fractures them. Mm -hmm. This idea that if I have the ability to create life, then I can be like God. Mm -hmm. And if I can be like God, am I, am a, am I a God? Mm -hmm. And so theologians really struggle with this. <clears throat> what I think is fascinating when we talk about Descartes theologically, what they do from him is to state they, they only focus in on the one time, mm -hmm. just like he told them not to do. Yeah, yeah. He focuses in on the, they focus in on the right. one time. And so his idea is just, you think about it, but then you go out and experience mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. it, so, but... Where I was going to go with this is that theologically, from from Descartes, we really get a, a gentleman by the uh, well. There's a bunch of theologians at this point that mm -hmm. are arguing about the the philosophy of life and science and philosophy and theology all kind of work together. Mm -hmm. So I I think of this. I go back a little bit further, and I think like Galileo and Copernicus, who are clergy, mm -hmm. who are saying I have a theory of science where. Uh, mm -hmm this idea of how things are supposed to happen and what the church would do would be to shut it down. So they, right. they become excommunicated. They become right. her heretic heretics. Mm -hmm. And so anything that was against the institution was always considered heretical. Mm -hmm. And I say this is fascinating because from Descartes on, mm -hmm. 
heresy ends up being raised. Yeah. Like it's yeah. super exciting to be a heretic. Right, right. After Descartes because, yeah. Descartes because of this, yeah. I think, therefore I am. Uh, where I was going to go with the, some of our big hitters at that point then become, we start to have to create schools of thought of theology. Mm-hmm. Whereas in... Um, up until this point, there was only one school of thought. Mm-hmm. It was this holy, universal Catholic Church, and yeah. I'm not talking bad about the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I'm saying Catholic in the in the academic sense meant universal. Mm-hmm. So, um, when Martin Luther breaks off of uh, the Catholic movement and begins a, a larger Reformational movement, the conversation then changes, and it's just coincidental that Descartes not shortly after that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. historically wise. Yeah. And I think it's kind of ironic that you say things splintered after him. Right. Because part of his motivation was the world he lived in was fracturing. We have wars going on all over the place. Yeah. Science is doing weird stuff. Religions are doing weird things. His main goal was to actually try to unite everything exactly. into a foundation that everyone could say, yes, this is absolutely true. Right. We can stand here together. And work from there. But instead, like I said, it just, just fractured. fractured everything. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's what Plato mm-hmm. and Aristotle were trying to do, too. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. they were trying to bring a sense of unity in the midst of right. empire. You right. know, how do we live in this? And then all of a sudden, we use everything that they say <laughs> to create another institution. Right, right. Um, which I think is, it's, it's really fascinating to me on mm-hmm. that. So, uh, you know, one of the things that you and I were talking about is, is that why is this discussion important today? Right. When we think about uh, philosophy and theology how, and how it affects the way that we are current time that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. How, how do you see that working philosophically? I know I have ideas theologically. So, so, so again, just narrowly construed Western philosophy, civilization. So much of what we experience is based on philosophical ideas. Right. Uh, so the way our government was formed is based on philosophical ideas. Uh, the way we enact laws are going to be based on philosophical ideas. Um, like I think I mentioned before, my philosophy of law professor used to be a lawyer. And he would talk about uh, the law he did. By the time they got in front of a judge, the law was very much a gray area. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't argue law at that point. You had to make philosophical arguments. You had to appeal to certain ideas or what society ought to be. And that's what the judge would then be using to determine what the law should be. So there's a real sense of saying, you know, philosophy comes first with our commitments about what is real and what kind of ideal world do we want to live in. And then that gets articulated in the kind of laws that we make or the kind of governments we build. Other things I think philosophy adds to the conversation is we do a lot of thought experiments, mm-hmm. uh, and a large part of what we do is just a history of how ideas form. Uh, and recently, kind of an example I was thinking of uh, back in the late 90s, a movie Gattaca comes out. Right. And, you know, it's about genetic modifications. Right. Um, how does that impact personhood? How does that influence how you're going to live your life? What kind of destiny are you going to have? Uh, and so although those are things that philosophers have talked about for a long time, that kind of injected this whole conversation of, wow, what should we be doing with genetic modification if we're doing anything? You know, this right. is back in the 90s. Uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, the Nobel Prize has come out. I know. And it's, the chemistry prize is in gene editing. Uh, I think it's called CRISPR. Yep. 
And yeah, so now, you know, things that back in the 90s that we were talking about in the classroom, where half of us are like, wow, this is cool. And the other half are like, oh, man, this is science fiction. It's never going to happen. Never going like, to happen. Well, we live in that world now. I know. know. Um, and so we have a choice now of do we just start the conversation all over from square run, one to figure out what to do, or do we look back at what people have already said and try to gain knowledge back when they had the luxury just to sit around and think exactly. about it instead of being in a in kind of a time pressure that things are happening right now that need a decision. Well, I think I think that absolutely reflects theologically too. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that the the institutional church, if it if it if it sounds mystical, mm-hmm. we're totally against it. Right. And 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 so like when you're talking about Gattaca, I I think about um, all of those ideas of playing God. Mm-hmm. All, all the movies that came out in the fifties and sixties that that were so controversial because who who plays God? Right. Like my favorite movie when I was a kid was Oh God You Devil. Like mm-hmm. there was this. Yeah, yeah. I mean George Burns. I mean right. who can beat it? Right? right. So you've got this this idea that. Now, now, when you talk about the genetic editing, the, the biggest part that the church, mm-hmm. and this is fascinating to me because the, the Catholic church was adamantly opposed to this. Mm-hmm. Like it was, mm-hmm. I remember when in the 90s, it was, the Pope was speaking out against it mm-hmm. and how dare we try to play God. And, and then all of a sudden, everything was affected by movies at that point. Right. Then Jurassic Park comes right, out, right, right. you know, and it's all about these uh, genetic editing mm-hmm. things. And, and. And it's fascinating to me that in the 80s and 90s, in the midst of the Cold War, mm-hmm. um, we start to have this conversation, well, what would happen if, mm-hmm. which in, in, in historical theological understandings, a midrash is exactly like that. A mm-hmm. Jewish person would ask the question, what if, mm-hmm. and how would God do this? Right. Uh, instead, we've said, no, no, God would never have that conversation, mm-hmm. which so for me, the, theology is going backwards. Mm-hmm. But it and there is still a, a, an academic side of theology that people have the ability to have that conversation and say, well, God gave us the ability to de- design the CRISPR. So mm-hmm. why is that such a bad right, thing? Right. You know, and I say the CRISPR. It's just <laughs> CRISPR. <laughs> the CRISPR. Yeah, so well. Can't be smart all the time. So, and then, and then politics and law. You know, the church had so much to say about law based off of ancient philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, everything that we do pol- politically comes from Plato and Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the idea of the Senate and the democracy, even, that right. whole concept comes from that. So mm-hmm. I, I find that really interesting. So as we kind of come to that part where we're, we're kind of closing ourselves up and, mm-hmm. and why theology and philosophy mm-hmm. are important for us to talk about today. Mm-hmm. So if we were to talk about some big hitters... Mm-hmm. If anybody wanted to go and, and look them up or research them, who, who might you mention? So if we're looking about people who have influenced kind of things going on nowadays, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm going to have to just cross this with the people I was interested in when sure. I was in school. Um, so I like Daniel Dennett because he responds to Descartes. Uh, so Descartes had a certain view of psychology called the Cartesian theater, Mm -hmm. where it's like you got this little self in your head that's controlling everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of modern psychology is based on that. Uh, But Dennett did some work basically destroying the whole idea of the theater. You don't really have a self the way psychology had thought of it. You've got something else going on. Uh, So I just find that kind of fascinating that he's trying to break this paradigm. Uh, Another guy that I really liked was Peter Singer of 
very controversial philosopher, um, but he really set the stage for modern like animal rights movements. Mm-hmm. He really set the stage for um, arguing that we should help the poor and the needy. Mm-hmm. And even though I, I don't agree with everything he said, when I was teaching philosophy, it was often Peter Singer's work when I taught the kids that that's when the kids would come to me and say, wow, I really think I need to be a vegetarian now. Oh, wow. Or I really need to reconsider uh, the life I live and start helping other people. Yeah. So I think at a very practical level, uh, he's influenced people, you know, good or bad. Uh and he comes from a long tradition of philosophers kind of doing that, um, like animal rights and vegetarianism, women's rights kinds of things. They, right. they tend to just say, hey, we need to do this. Uh, then the other guy I thought was interesting, uh, Michael Walzer, did a lot of work in just war theory. So talking about when our government's justified to go to war. And once we are in the midst of battle, how must we act ethically? And I think I got really interested in that, especially from Gulf War One and Two, because you know, back then we're going to war, which we're still in. You know, so it's right. important to ask: Are we justified in doing this? And then, if we are justified, how are we going to behave ourselves in the battlefield? Now, if we're just looking at modern heavy hitters, I think people would be interested in uh, Cornell West does a lot of work. Oh man, social activism. Yeah. Uh, Judith Butler, she does a lot of work with gender studies. Uh, and a guy I'm really interested in, I know absolutely nothing about, um, I think his name is Zizek. And I've heard him described in two different ways. One is like a, a neo-Marxist critique of everything. Uh-huh. Uh, and also kind of like a modern-day Socrates gadfly of just really pushing people to try to figure out what their commitments and beliefs really lead to. So those would be kind of three I would be looking at myself. Well, see, I think the, the struggle that we're having with theology today is, is we splintered again. Mm-hmm. So we had this idea of systematic theology that was created by uh, the Tillichs, um, Paul Tillich specifically, mm, yeah. who creates really how how we think theologically in a, in a systematic process. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of guided the church for a long time, but in the in the in the latter part of the 20th century, we started a new movement that really just splintered in all kinds of ways and, and said, we want to look at theology in a construct. So it went from um, systematic theology to constructive theology. And I hesitate because it's really hard to narrow it down to three And I, yeah. as, as we were talking about this, because the thing that's beautiful about constructive theology is, is then you have the ability for other voices that are not straight white men always speaking mm-hmm. all the time. So, like, I think of Sally McFaig. I had to look her up just a minute ago. Sally McFaig, she is a, a theologian who, who really put a, a lot of her focus in on the earth, on the care of the earth, and how we mm-hmm. must do that. And, and so you, you'll hear them, her working specifically right alongside a lot of the uh, um, global warming People that they'll bring her in the in the midst of the discussion, right. and then I think of it was funny you said Judy, Judith Butler because I, I think for a lot of our maybe not the antithesis of it, but the 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 guy that I keep thinking of uh, Neil Caputo, he's another theologian that talks about politics in today's culture and how um, how much of Jesus's speaking was talking about 
living within a polis. Mm -hmm. So uh, Neil Caputo talks about, of course, I have a professor named Joe Bessler who, um, who wrote this book called The Scandalous Jesus. And then he did a, a lot of research on Jefferson about mm -hmm. uh, the creation of the, um, the Bill of Rights oh, and, wow. and the Constitution and, and how that affected Christianity. Mm -hmm. And mainly because he was a deist mm -hmm. and most people automatically say, oh, he was a, he's a hardcore Christian. No, mm -hmm. no, no, no. He, he was a hardcore theologian. Mm -hmm. He looked at the Bible in a different way. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I think about that, and I feel like I just have to say an, another, uh, another woman because there's so, so many of them that are, are finally being able to be heard. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a little bit particular about some of my professors, but um, anything that's written by Sarah Maurice Brubaker or Mindy McGarris Sharp or uh, even Ellen Blue, I, I just, there's, there's a lot of voices of women right now that yeah. have, not, have been hushed for right. a really long time. Right. So I, I just had to say that because mm -hmm. I, I, I had trying to narrow it down to three, but yeah. I could go all day well, long. Well, it's hard. Like, I Googled influential philosophers. Oh, you know, my gosh. Immediately you get the 50 most, and you read through this list, and you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that one. Okay. But, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think it is possible just to list yeah. the ones. I was just, I was in my, in my mind, the, the heavy hitters that I would use for the aspect of theology, I just think that constructive theologians, and it, and, and that's all I'd have to Google is yeah. constructive theology, and mm -hmm. you can find all kinds of them that right. are out there, and and where philosophy I feel like is is kind of uh, diversified, mm -hmm. take that diversification and multiply it times a thousand, <laughs> yeah. and you're finally hearing voices that have right. been shut off for right. so long, both in philosophy mm -hmm. and theology. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that's another reason that we have to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Kevin, I want to say thank you very much for us having this opportunity to discuss. What we want everybody to do is, is we want you to turn in uh, next, tune in next week. We're going to ask the question, if humans had souls, when and where were they created? And so basically the conversation of what are we? And we want to encourage you to uh, it, be prepared to watch the movie Dogma, uh, Superman, Man of Steel, um, and then... Make sure that you don't have kids in the room for this next one, the boys. So uh, with that being said, we want to say thank you very much for you all turning into the B&B uh, &B show. <laughs>